Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips Tax Girl. I'm a tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers and tax practitioners like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Earlier this month, ProPublica made waves when it published what it said was verified IRS information showing that billionaires like Jeff Bezos and Warren Buffett pay little in income tax compared to their massive wealth. ProPublica described the info as, quote, an unprecedented look inside the financial lives of America's titans, including Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, Rupert Murdoch, and Mark Zuckerberg. ProPublica went on to say that it, quote, shows not just their income and taxes, but also their investments, stock trades, gambling winnings, and even the results of audits. As you can imagine, the article caused quite a stir, not just because of how they got their data, but because of the larger discussions about wealth and taxes. One of the criticisms of the piece is that it appears at times to conflate wealth with income. This isn't a new issue. Income at the high end is often the result of not earned income that is taxed differently and that accession to wealth is often related to untaxed capital gains. I wanted to take some time to talk about wealth and taxes and what it all means. To do that, I've asked Steve Rosenthal to the show. Steve is a senior fellow in the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center at the Urban Institute, where he researches, speaks, and writes on a range of federal income tax issues with a particular focus on business taxes. In 2013, he was also the staff director of the D.C. Tax Revision Commission. Before joining Urban, Steve practiced tax law in D.C. for over 25 years, most recently as a partner at Ropes & Gray. He was a legislation counsel with the Joint Committee on Taxation, where he helped draft tax rules for financial institutions, financial products, capital gains, and related areas. He is also the former chair of the taxation taxation section of the District of Columbia Bar Association. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Steve. Thank you, Kelly. Well, so right off the bat, one of the things that people criticized this ProPublica piece about was this issue of conflating wealth and income. And, And I do think this is something that a lot of taxpayers struggle with. So can you kind of walk us through just a real quick intro to what is the difference generally between earned income and unearned income, and why do we tax it differently? Well, in the tax law, we have an income tax as a result of the 16th Amendment going back to 1913. And our income tax taxes only income, not wealth. And income requires something what is known as a realization event, typically a sale. And so you might buy stock or receive stock or found a company, and the value of your stock might increase over time. But until you have a realization event, until you actually sell that stock, you have no taxable income, largely. There are a few exceptions in the tax code, but largely. Mm -hmm. And so ProPublica highlighted that the fabulously wealthy amongst us often acquired their wealth by founding a company or developing a company or a business. And they have their wealth in highly appreciated ownership interests, 
stock or equity interest in a company. And they don't need to spend a lot of their wealth to have a pretty fine lifestyle. Sure. So as a consequence, they just sit on their stock and they watch it grow in value. And while it's growing, there's no income. Now, obviously, the value of your assets increase. You're better off financially, but you're not viewed as having more income under our income tax. Right. And that's why when, you know, Buffett, for example, is very famous for saying that he thinks he pays a lower tax rate than his secretary. He said that many years ago. And that's because even though he's wealthy, that doesn't affect his tax rate. And I think that's something that a lot of taxpayers don't always get. Like we look at a millionaire, a billionaire, and we assume that they pay the very top tax rate, but that's not always the case. Correct. The tax that Buffett would pay or Bezos, or Zuckerberg, would be the income items that they received during the year. Dividends, interest, and maybe if they needed to, sell stocks to finance some purchase, gains on the sale of the stock. But they don't need typically to sell. And so consequently, you know, somebody like a Warren Buffett and and perhaps Jeff Bezos is even more extreme, of course. Bezos has very, very little income, notwithstanding the fact that the value of his Amazon stock just keeps rising and rising and rising. And again, he's doing very, very well, but he doesn't have much income. And income is the determinant of tax liability in our system. Right. And so Bezos is a great example because a lot of people point to 2007, which is uh, one of the years that's highlighted in the ProPublica story for a year that he paid no income tax, federal income tax. Although that year, his stock more than doubled. They actually say that his fortune grew uh, grew by $3.8 billion that year. And so when they looked, he actually, over time, they calculated this four-year period where his wealth grew almost 100 billion dollars with the B, but his income for that same period of time over, I guess, again, I think it was about four years, was only about $4 billion, and he paid less than $1 billion in total tax. So it was less than 1% of his wealth. So people point a finger at that and they say, that's what's wrong with the tax code. So one of the words that people are throwing out a lot on Twitter when they were talking about this story is they're like, it's a loophole, it's a loophole, but it's not a loophole. It's actually the way the tax policy and, and our tax system is built, right? Well, right. We have an income tax, not a wealth tax. As a matter of fact, when the 16th Amendment was ratified, it was done so in part because of constitutional limitations on taxing. And so income taxes are now constitutional. But wealth tax taxes uh, often are constitutionally suspect. Mm -hmm. There's a difference in view on whether or not the U.S. could have a wealth tax without amending the Constitution again. But an income tax is clearly constitutional and lawful. A wealth tax is potentially suspect. And we don't have a wealth tax. So, So, look, I was not surprised to know that so many of these billionaires had relatively little income. Again, they don't have to generate much income to support their lifestyle because their lifestyle, it's hard to spend as much money as they have, actually. They struggle, I think. 
<laughs> right. And so as a consequence, they can just hold on to their assets and watch them rise in value. There is also what might yet be viewed as a, a somewhat quirky feature of our tax code, which is the so-called borrow and die phenomenon. That when you borrow money from the bank, you don't owe any tax on the borrowing because the borrowing comes with it a liability to repay the money. Mm -hmm. Likewise, if you borrow money from your stockbroker and use as collateral the securities in your margin account, or if you're a rich guy and pledge some of your appreciated stock to a bank to borrow money, the borrowing itself is not a taxable event. And as a consequence, to the extent that some of these billionaires need more money to spend on their lifestyle, and they don't want to sell the stock that they that is appreciated, they're not really required to this. They could just borrow against it. And there's also a, a third aspect of this buy, borrow, and die, the die piece, which is right now we have a step-up in basis at death. Mm-hmm. So that Bezos or Zuckerberg or Warren Buffett, if they were to die and their estate continues to hold this appreciated stock, their heirs would have a basis step up to fair market value. And that built-in gain that was held until death would never be taxed in our income tax system. That's actually, in my view, a flaw in our income tax system. And I think President Biden has some proposals to address that. But the basic aspect of the story that suggests that as wealth accumulates, that there is an obligation to, to pay the U.S. government more taxes, I think is simply wrong. That That's lawful not to pay taxes when you have no income. And I don't think there's any obligation, either morally or legally, to do so. Right. And I just wanted to point out one of the things that you mentioned about the step up in basis, which I think is also really important to taxpayers is that that step up in basis and the idea that you have certain kinds of assets that appreciate over time that you don't pay tax on as it's appreciating until there's, you know, the taxable event that applies to everybody. And I think that, you know, that's all taxpayers, right? So it's the same, it's the same for you and me as it is for Warren Buffett that if you buy a house and it appreciates over time, and then you sell it, you don't worry about any kind of tax on gains, which you know you might not have any anyway because of the exemption, but you don't have to pay during your lifetime tax on any gain until you sell it. And if you never sell it, when you die, your heirs do get that step up. I think what's confusing for folks is that we often talk about step up in basis as it relates to the federal estate tax. So there's a lot of taxpayers who have this assumption that you only get the step up if you have a federally taxable estate, and that's not true. These concepts that we're talking about, even though we're talking about them at this really high end, it applies to everybody. If you buy stock and hold on to it, the same treatment applies to you as a taxpayer as does to Bezos or to Buffett. Absolutely. These basic income tax principles extend to everyone. That is, in order to have income, you need a realization like a sale. A borrowing is not income because it comes with it attached, a liability. And everybody has step up in basis if uh, an appreciated asset is carried into death. And so you're right. These principles apply generally. However, there is a difference between 
someone who's mega rich and someone who is working for a living as to how much advantage these basic principles afford. Mm -hmm. So a, a working man or woman really is not in a position to simply sit and hold securities and allow them to appreciate until they can be stepped up at death. They might need to use some of their invested portfolio to pay the kids' college education. They may, might need to dispose of some of the portfolio to get to retirement because that's typically a life cycle. You save and invest, and then later you sell and consume. But a mega billionaire like a Jeff Bezos or Zuckerberg or Warren Buffett, they don't have to consume. And so they are afforded a greater opportunity to avail themselves of that step up at death. And so if you look at the Biden proposal, uh, sometimes it's labeled to end step up at death. And that's really not what the Biden proposal would do. It's a gains on death proposal that if someone dies with appreciated property in excess of a million dollars or $2 million for a couple, that appreciation will be realized and the estate will write a check to the U.S. government. That appreciation will not escape tax. And there's a very high threshold, a million or $2 million, a very high threshold before the Biden's gain at death kicks in. And I think the reason Biden fashioned the proposal in that fashion is that even though step up at death is available to everyone, it's even all the more valuable to the richest, not just because they can avoid a larger amount of gain being recognized, but also that they don't have to sell their assets during their lifetime, and they can further exploit the advantage of that particular gain, you know, the step up at death. Raven, I want to go back to something you mentioned when you were using, making the example, you specifically said working man. And that's also, I think, another distinction that witnessing in discussions about the public piece, which is that I'm a W-2 earner. So I pay tax, which is also very clearly reported to the IRS. They know how much I brought in, they know the source of it, and they know what I paid in withholding. I don't rely on other kinds of income to make a living. So I'm not reliant on any kind of passive income. I'm not reliant on stock dividends. I don't live off of interest. Some of these folks that we've been talking about, they are not salary earners, right? Like they're not getting a wage. They're deriving their income, even though we've talked about the fact that a lot of it may be deferred in the, in the sense of it's, it's appreciated growth from assets, but they're getting a lot of their income from these other sources. It is, you know, maybe stock dividends. It is maybe, you know, interest income. So it's not wages. And those are not always taxed the same as ordinary income. Can you talk a little bit about like if I sell a share of stock that you were mentioning earlier, how is that taxed differently from, say, you know, my paycheck? Well, there are a variety of features of our income tax that benefit capital holders and stockholders and the like. One of the advantages of owning stock is that you can time when you want to sell the stock. If you have gains, you could defer those gains. If you have losses, built-in losses, you could take those losses and offset perhaps other investment gains you have. So the realization event, that deferral 
element, the ability to time your gains and losses, that's one advantage. Another advantage making a living off of capital as opposed to sweat is that the returns on capital are often advantaged. Long-term capital gains are subject to a top tax rate of 20% plus a 3.8 net investment income tax. Dividends also are subject to 20% plus a 3.8% tax. Retirement savings, to the extent you can really boost your IRA or save more in your 401k, and I don't think the billionaires have mega IRAs, but the very well-to-do have, partners and law firms and accounting firms and the like. I have a very large IRA. I have very large 401ks because that was a feature of the professional class. We could sock away a lot of our capital and allow it to accumulate tax-free and withdraw decades in the future. So the basic point is that capital is lightly taxed in our country. And so you look at the differences between the way we tax a rich person and a working person, the difference between the rich person and the worst working person is the rich person has capital. They have a lot of assets, and the working person has fewer assets. Capital returns are lightly taxed. Wage returns are taxed at full rates. You can wander into an economic slash political analysis as to whether that's a good or bad thing, but it's a, a clearly a difference between how we tax capital returns and wage income. And apart from just the question of what rate to apply, that deferral element continues to be very important. And as I said, that was really the heart of the ProPublica piece. Right. And, and one of the discussions, though, that came out of that piece, too, was whether or not that system is fair. And obviously, this isn't something that you resolve on a, on a podcast. But what are the arguments generally that this is not a fair tax system, this way that you tax sweat differently, as you mentioned, you call it sweat versus, you know, your, your capital. What are the arguments for it not being fair versus it is fair? Usually we evaluate tax rules along the lines of equity and efficiency. And when we think in terms of equity, we generally believe that those who can contribute more should contribute more. And when you think of these mega billionaires who are contributing taxes at a lower rate relative to all their wealth, I think that rubs a lot of people as wrong. You know, again, I think it's a feature of our income tax, but it does strike a lot of people as, as unfair. So the question then would be, if you viewed that as unfair, if you believed billionaires ought to contribute more, well, then we have to devise tax rules to accomplish that. We might, for instance, start taxing capital gains and dividend incomes at higher rates, although that really wouldn't affect Warren Buffett because Berkshire Hathaway doesn't pay any dividends and Warren never sells any Berkshire Hathaway stock. So it'd be hard to to change the rates and squeeze more out of Warren Buffett. We could do things like what is known as a mark-to-market approach, treat Warren Buffett and other rich Americans as if they've sold all their stock every year and any unrealized gains be reported and taxed at that time. But that raises all sorts of implementations and compliance and complications and things of that. I think what Biden suggests is, well, one element that we could certainly remove is the attractiveness of holding the appreciated stock all the way until death and having that appreciation escape any taxation, any income tax at all. 
right. not during the lifetime and not at death. And so, you know, I personally think that's a very wise decision by Biden. And I think there are a variety of questions that pop up. But normally, when you think in terms of evaluating something in terms of equity and efficiency, uh, it's pretty, in my view, pretty equitable to make sure those gains are taxed and pretty efficient because usually taxing events at death don't distort behavior. Nobody decides to die, say. <laughs> right. Although as a former estate planner, I will argue that there are people who would take steps knowing that they were going to die or assuming that they might die within a certain time frame. you know, when you hit a certain age or if you have a, an ailment to plan to distribute that wealth differently, maybe and and maximize the tax benefits. So I would agree that you generally don't uh, know when you're going to die, but sometimes the folks at these levels are already doing the planning, right? They're doing the planning years ago. So they're going to make some kind of response. Because I think one of the arguments tends to be that if you change the tax systems, you're going to encourage the Gateses of the world, the Zuckerbergs of the world to make some changes. But maybe the folks who are at the higher end of the middle class, maybe not so much. Is that a fair worry? Well, it depends on the scope of your proposal. Like Biden has pledged not to increase taxes on anyone making less than $400,000. And his gains at death has exemptions for $1 million or $2 million for a couple, say. And so with those large exemptions, well, relatively few people are affected. On the other hand, let's take a, a Gates or take a Zuckerberg. They have access to very good planners. You might even work for one of them if they ring you up. And as a consequence, they would they might yet try to plan uh, to mitigate the, the effect of any new tax, say a gains on death proposal. Maybe they take planning steps during their lifetime, use trusts, play valuation games, things of that sort to lower uh, the potential tax they might have to pay yet at death. That could happen. In my view, it's as a first step, we ought to have rules that simply don't allow appreciation income to escape any taxation. And, you know, I guess this sometimes becomes philosophical in terms of like how you view the wealth you have and whether you should share it with your community and your society more generally, or whether you alone uh, should determine where it goes, uh, whether it goes to heirs or a charity of your choice. Although one thing is certain, you can't take it with you. This is true. <laughs> one of the things that um, when you talk about planning and, and how this might change, the capital gain structure might change the way that people plan. One of the other uh, policy items that's been tossed around while reading this report, and it is something that tends to be kind of a gut reaction for a lot of folks is, well, if they're not paying very much in taxes, that we should raise rates at the top. And this was addressed in the ProPublica story, the ProPublica story, but they actually looked at whether or not changing that top tax rate to 39.6% would actually alter how much folks do pay the millionaires, the billionaires, I guess you would say. And they actually said that the, the, the vast majority of the top 25 would see little change in their overall tax picture if we raise the rates. So do you think that altering rates is something that should be out of the question? Or is this something, I guess what I'm getting at overall is they read the report and they're like, this isn't fair. What can we do? People should pay more in tax at the top. So you start kind of ticking off the ways that they can do that. We can tax capital gains. We can raise the top tax rate. We can 
cut out some of the tax-favored provisions. Do you think that changing a tax rate makes a difference? Not to these mega billionaires. I, I think that was the point of the story, that they become mega billionaires by holding assets that appreciate fabulously. Mm-hmm. And as long as they hold their assets, they're not having any income. So changing the tax rate on the income that they realize or they report won't have much of an effect because they don't report much. Right. And so in those circumstances, as I said earlier, you got to look to other solutions. And I tell you, one solution that I like is I like the Biden gains at death. And then I'd have a higher capital gains tax rate at death than I would have during life. Maybe uh, have the tax rate at death be the same as ordinary income and the tax rate during life be the reduced 20%. And that might yet encourage more sales during lifetime to avoid having pay a higher tax bill at death. Sort of flip the current tax planning on its head. Today, you want to carry your assets into death and pass them on to your heirs at their full fair market value with the stepped-up death. But under this Rosenthal approach, in which I'd have higher tax rates at death than I would during lifetime, you'd want to get rid of more of your assets during life and pay more taxes during life and not hold all the assets until death. I think that would be a sensible approach. I'm not sure exactly what the rates would be. A natural would be ordinary rates at death and capital gain preference rates during life. But we could find the optimal rate to raise the most amount of taxes and even take into consideration efficiency effects because we don't like, as a general proposition, lock-in. Holding assets until death may not may, may prevent those assets from going to someone who, who could yet value them at their highest and best use. And so there's a lot of levers that one could pull to come up with the right kind of answer. And when I worked for Congress at the Joint Tax Committee, We thought about all these different levers and you give me a problem and I'll give you a solution. (laughs) Well, one of the things since I mentioned that I cut my teeth on estates work early on, one of the arguments that was always tossed out regarding the federal estate tax, uh, so not on the income tax, but on the estate tax side, is that imposing any kind of tax at death necessarily impacted families, right? So that was the argument that was always made for raising, wanting to raise the exemption rate is that you want to impact fewer families. And the argument that was always made for exempt, um, sorry, repealing the tax altogether is that any kind of tax at death necessarily impacts families and small businesses. That argument would surely be made in these kinds of scenarios. Would there be any kind of exemption or has there been any discussions about any kind of exemptions or exceptions for small businesses? Yes. I think Biden suggested in his proposal that there'd be special accommodations for small businesses and for farms, that whatever tax was due at death might yet be delayed, paid later, given a, give the family or the farm an opportunity to uh, make payments later. But you're right that inherent in an estate tax or even collecting tax on income that had not been, or appreciation that had not previously been taxed, that's going to take away or reduce the value of, take away assets or reduce the value of an of estate that yet gets passed on to heirs. And so that would take away some uh, wealth from a family, whether it's a small business 
that the wealth is, or whether it's a farm, or even my stock portfolio. I've sort of grown attached to it. <laughs> and right. so whatever we tax will reduce the estate and the assets that can be passed on. And so I guess you could argue that's anti-family, but I don't think so. I think of this in a more democratic and a small d sense. It's anti-dynasty. One of the features of our country, at least I've experienced, and I think many have, is the endless opportunity that we have uh, to succeed. And part of the reason why so much opportunity exists is that we try, in many instances, to eliminate dynastic wealth and to prevent uh, those from being born into riches and, and those being born into a caste system of some sort. Mm-hmm. Some would argue we're failing at that in recent years because wealth inequality has been so exacerbated. But nonetheless, I think it's a worth, worthwhile democratic goal to try to reduce dynastic wealth. Of course, others have different value systems, and they think increasing dynastic wealth and family wealth is a good thing. And so those are values that yet lead to policy. And it's interesting because when you talk about dynastic wealth, one of the stats that ProPublica threw out was that the 25 richest Americans were worth $1.1 trillion at the end of 2018. And then they said, for comparison, it would take 14.3 million ordinary American wage earners put together to have that same amount of wealth. And I think that that is one of the things, again, I kind of keep coming back to, you know, Buffett and Bezos. And that's clearly why ProPublica put those folks in this analysis is because I do think it's really difficult for an average taxpayer to understand. And I don't mean that in a patronizing way. I'm including myself in that whole (laughs) discussion, like how much money that really is and what the difference between them and us, I'm using air quotes, them and us really is. Because I think that, and I, you know, I, I mentioned the the argument about small businesses and families, I would say that a small business worth a million dollars is doing really well. I think most people would agree that if you have assets of a million dollars, you're doing well in this country. I think that the problem is when we start drawing lines in the sand is, you know, where do you draw that line? Do you say that somebody who has over a million dollars is doing well, or are they doing really well? Where do you make that jump from 1 million to 1 billion to 1 trillion, right? Like, I think that that's part of the the problem that we sometimes have wrapping our head around all of these different tax levels. So let me just stop you there in terms of, I think you're conflating a million dollar business, the assets versus a million dollars appreciation, say. I'm talking about appreciation, but a lot of value in businesses in America, especially like service-based business, they started from zero. So the appreciation is also the asset, right? I'm not assuming that someone bought real estate and, and other assets that are wildly appreciated. I'm assuming that the wealth of the person is tied to the asset. Okay. Today, we've lifted the estate tax to have exemptions of 11, 12 million a person. So there is no tax on death with an estate tax until, let's say, with a married couple or portable exemptions, $22, 23000000 million. It's a very large number. I think it's too large. 
So that changed relatively rapidly. Like that, that number has increased to that amount during the time that I've been practicing. Like I remember practicing when it was much, much less. Like I remember Bush tax cuts, right? And then when that, and that was part of the estate exemption amount. And that was when we finally pushed it above a million. So that number that we have now, um, it hasn't always been that high. Right. But my observation is the pendulum has swung too far. That is, we're accommodating a lot more wealth transfer without taxes. And if you stop and look at the, and there's a reason why the estate tax exemptions have been increased. There's been a very effective lobbying campaign for many years to increase them. But then if you look to what Biden is trying, which is something different, to tax gains at death, that appreciation, maybe it's a million or $2 million of appreciation in an asset or a business. I'm not too sure how much worth the business is once the service provider dies, if it's a service business, say. But, but it's still a large number. And there are accommodations for businesses and small businesses to delay the tax payment. And I would step back and say, I think Biden's goal is to target these mega billionaires, which have such a disproportionate share of the wealth in our society. And I suspect he would increase the exemption amounts in order to get after the mega billionaires as best he he can. The trouble is politically that whenever you try to tax assets or estates, there are politicians who come up with the old loss of the family farm. Right. Uh, for estate tax. I don't think we've ever found a family farm that was lost because of an estate tax liability. It's right. a very uncommon event in large part because we have so many accommodations. Mm-hmm. And that is not to use a poster child of the family farm or the small business to prevent us from tackling the huge appreciation of these mega billionaires, which will go untaxed, escape tax for a lifetime if we don't collect it at death, I think that would be unfortunate. Right. And I appreciate that. I think what I'm what I was alluding to is that as you mentioned, the the estate tax exemption now is really high, right? But a million for appreciated assets, that's not targeting Bezos. I think what the argument against it is, is that it's targeting upper middle class. That is the argument. Now whether or not that's the reality is another issue maybe. But it's interesting to me, and I think it's something that was, again, raised on social media, is if you're going to look at ways to tax appreciated assets, it is curious, why was it a million and not 10 million? I'm just saying that I do think it's, you know, when you talk about the family farm and those those very successful attacks on the federal estate tax over time, that's the narrative, right? That you're destroying small businesses and farms. And I agree with you that, you know, they've been chasing that family farm story for years. Knowing that background, and of course, you know more about this than me having worked in that world because I, I haven't been on the Hill. But you know, knowing that background, I was, I do think that people were surprised that the threshold was as low as it was. Again, I think there are accommodations for small businesses. I think that there was a story in uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, over the weekend. Uh, Laura Saunders uh, wrote the story that described that some taxpayers will have a home, a long-held asset that could yet appreciate by a million or two million given the run-up in home prices. Mm-hmm. And that could be addressed, say, by uh, exempting homes. And of course, 
there's also the extra two hundred fifty or five hundred thousand dollar exemption for sale of a principal residence, and so the one million and two million is increased by that as well. Right. But you could deal with some of that, and I think what you would eventually end up with is trying to set the floor uh, for where, how much gain, how much appreciated gain in the stock portfolio do you think ought to escape any taxation? And whether the right level is 1, 2 million, 10 million, 20 million, it's hard to say. When you think about stocks, if you look to, the Fed has lots of good data. It's very simple to find. The top 1% own more than half of all the stocks in our, in, in, in our, in our country. The bottom 50% own less than 1%. So you and I might fashion ourselves as upper middle class or middle class. I think it's a common phenomenon that everyone believes are just middle class or upper middle class. <laughs> right, right. But in fact, and your listeners are undoubtedly probably include a disproportionate number of professionals and who have good salaries and, and incomes, perhaps from practicing tax. But the large bulk of our country have very few assets. And so if we're going to try to address wealth inequality and you have trouble getting there through a wealth tax constitutionally, we've got to at least do the best we can with the income tax to try to distribute the income uh, that goes untaxed to lessen the burden of others, at least in my view. And since you've mentioned uh, you know, the inequality argument, which is something that we're hearing more and more, I think, recently, I'll ask you a bit of a loaded question, which is, do you think the ProPublica story helped or harmed the chances of getting something like Biden's capital gains plan through? I think it helped because it put a spotlight on actual numbers and events that lots of people don't really realize is happening now. We only have an income tax. We can't collect on appreciating wealth. I think the reason why it could get hurt, because ProPublica claimed to get a, a, a trove of confidential tax return information, uh, which is supposed to be guarded zealously by the IRS. And I personally am offended that confidential taxpayer information is disclosed if it actually came from uh, somewhere in the IRS. That would be a felony, and that would be wrong. We share our tax information. We have a voluntary system and trust in part the confidentiality that the IRS maintains. Right. And so that, of course, harms it. But I will step back and tell you, I, I think I, I mentioned to you right before we started, when I worked on the Hill, we had lots of ideas on the Hill for ways to raise taxes in a more equitable fashion. And many of our ideas never got anywhere until they first saw the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post. So having stories like that, I think, does enhance interest in trying to create a more equitable tax system, even if the information was gotten through what I would label sorted means. Yeah, it'll be interesting to find out what comes of that, because that that is being investigated, right, where the info came from. So thank you so much. I think this has been really insightful and thoughtful. I hope that a lot of people are looking at wealth in new and different ways, which is kind of the idea of the program is that I think a lot of folks assume that everybody kind of gets their wealth the same way. They just get it at different rates, right? So we think that the wealthy have done the same thing as we did. They just did it faster or better. But there are a lot of mechanisms for allowing people to gain and hold on to wealth that are not loopholes. (laughs) The system is built that way. And I think this has really been helpful in sorting some of that out. So thank you very much for that. You're welcome, Kelly. Thank you for having me on your show. 
Thanks. And if you wanted to be found and people wanted to find you either on social media or on the web, where would you send them? My Twitter account, Stever Tax, S-T-E-B-R Tax is my handle. Awesome. And I'll be sure to put that in the show notes so that the listeners can find you. And thank you again for being on the show. Okay. Thank you. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. You can send an email with your feedback to podcast at taxgirl.com. And if you liked it, please share. You can find the audio of each episode at taxgirl.com. You can also subscribe on your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them shouldn't be.